0: My guest today is uh, Sir Peter Vardy. If you've lived in England, you've probably heard the name Vardy. He's the British businessman and philanthropist who is one of the wealthiest men in the UK. Having had a great success in the automotive industry, Sir Peter's life acts as a guide for many of us of what we should aspire to be. For quite some time after he sold his business, He's been focused on philanthropy uh, through his personal foundation, the Vardy Foundation, which supports a wide range of community causes. He helped to fund the building of a city technology college, three academies, uh, which uh, together form the Emmanuel Schools Foundation, a coalition of schools with a Christian ethos. His foundation continues to make grants and provide support to a wide range of charitable causes, including fighting homelessness and modern day slavery, establishing hospitals and food banks, providing education to children, and one of my favorite, uh, keeping children out of care. Not out of the care of their family, but out of care facilities and care services. For all of his effort, he was uh, granted a knighthood in the UK. It's not every day that you come across a businessman who's had a story of success followed by a story of giving that is similar to what we're going to talk about today, Sir Peter Vardy. So uh, Sir Peter, I got to know about you from one of my listeners, Frances uh, Chalmers, and she texted me and said, you really have to you know, have uh, Sir Peter as a guest. And I was like, um, okay, so tell me a bit about him. And she said, no, just, just look at his work and you'll understand. And I did. Uh, so for our listeners who are not from the UK, I think people in the UK will have seen the name Vardy at least on 2 million car bumpers uh, in the past. But from the people in, not in the UK, would you be so kind to tell me a little bit about your business background, how you got to be one of the biggest dealers in the UK and how you, how you ended up selling 2 million cars, 6,000 people, all of that achievement. Tell me a bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a very fortunate life and uh, it's been really enjoyable, so uh, it has been happy. Uh-huh. I left school at 16 with no qualifications at all, really, but I hadn't uh, enjoyed education very much, although I'd gone to a very good school. But I came to work for my father, who had a little garage in a mining village in the northeast of England, and uh, he was selling Ford motorcars. I was a mechanic. I was a paint sprayer. I was a panel beater. I swept the floors, washed the cars. But I eventually got to selling them, and and once I started selling, I really enjoyed that, and uh, wanted to sell more than Fords, and uh, I built a showroom, and we took on a franchise for Aston Martin, and uh, obviously, the east of England. There hadn't been any Aston Martin dealers there for a long time, and I ended up being the top Aston Martin dealer in the world for the next four years from a little uh, garage in in a mining village. And that led on to Ferrari, Rolls-Royce and Bentley, Lotus. And I got all these franchises, and then I stepped into the volume side of the business with Ford and General Motors at the time. And we built it from the six people I had. that started with. We built it into a hundred dealerships, six thousand people, and um, had a, a wonderful time. A great company, fantastic team of people, and did very well. But in the, the way things are these days, with consolidation, we were a consolidator. I'd bought you know hundred dealerships, but another consolidator came along and said, "Would I consider selling?" And I said, "Well." You know, I am concerned that I'm actually at the limit of my ability to manage when I had a hundred dealerships, I didn't think it was possible to run more than a hundred dealerships and do well. You tend to expand and you expand high levels of net profit and the more you buy, the smaller the percentage. So I said, well, if it's the right thing to do, we would sell. So I, I sold the business. Uh, In two thousand and six, for in dollar terms, it was a billion dollars. Wow! And uh, we had a a marvelous time, and it was a great success. And we floated; it was a public company, so I I floated the company on the stock exchange and gave shares to all of my staff, so they all benefit, and we had a few number of millionaires out of selling the sold the company. So it was a great time. My son has started again in our business so he, he's developing his own brand and it wasn't a case of him taking over from me because i thought it was a public company and uh, he'll, he'll do his own thing so that, that is exactly what he's doing but it allowed me to go and do something else i started the foundation the charity side in 1989 and it was amazing what opportunities came along
0: yeah. Let's hold off the, the foundation for a while. I want to talk a lot, extensively about that. So from car mechanic, car, you know, washing the floors to this massive success, you know, it's everyone's dream, really. And when you really think about it, uh, I find that you did it in a very, I wouldn't say a different way, but, you know, business is normally about profit. It's like, hey, let's just go. Make as much money as we can, and and that's it and And I think your philosophy was very different. You didn't you thought that profit is the result of doing other things. Would, would you share a bit about that?
1: Yes I mean if you set out to make profit, you have very short term success, whereas we were trying to build a company for the future, and the values that we established were so important, and everyone needed to buy in the values. And it wasn't easy because salesmen get paid commission at the end of the month. They get paid at the end, and everybody is on an earnings basis. But trying to try and keep the balance of building a quality company where values mattered, and we wanted customers for life. We didn't want just you know to sell them one car. We needed to sell them the whole family cars and repeat business, and that that was what we set out to do. And it, it did work, uh, you know uh, the. The aim wasn't to, uh, and it's the same with my son, it's not trying to make me rich, because I think a lot of folks, 6,000 people, beavering away, thinking, well, we'll make the boss a fortune of money. We didn't have that sort of culture. You know, we all did well. We shared in it. They got shares in the public company, and we built up a very strong staff satisfaction, staff following. The profit was the end of the process, not the beginning. So, you know, can we improve the way we do things every day? Can we do something better today than we did it yesterday? And we're always looking for continual improvement. And I involved the whole staff I had one program that said, if it was your business, would you run it like this?
0: (laughs) I love this. So you would ask people what you would do differently that way?
1: Yeah. And 6000 people said, no, I wouldn't run it like this. (laughs) Is that true? Because I was wanting their ideas of how it could be better. I mean, the particular program I'm talking about, all of my managers and directs never say, oh, that's a dangerous thing to ask. They'll complain about us and they'll do this, that. And I said, no, they won't. They're all part of the team. I'm asking the team to help me improve the quality of the company. And they said, well, how are you going to pay them? And I said, for every good idea, I'll give them a pound. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, is that going to get a, a following? I said, yes, because I said, it's not about the money. It's just about the idea. Sure. And I had all sorts of ideas came at me. I mean, I can tell the story. Now, we'd made 19 million pounds the year before. The city had us in for about 21 million. I had to go back to the city a few times to say, look, I, I made a bit more than this because it rallied around with a passion for profit and a war on waste. And we were trying to cut out unnecessary waste and unnecessary time. And we actually declared to the city, I think, about 28 million. But we'd actually made 36, and the rest was in the bottom drawer for a rainy day. <laughs> but it just showed that when you involved the whole of the staff team, all of your colleagues, and said, look, it's your company, we Tell us how to make it better. Identify areas where we're going wrong and we're, we're wasting money. They all contributed. And, you know, we had colleague councils and everything in all of the dealerships. And they, they thought it was great fun that, uh, I mean, one instance, it might do it in the States. But when you get your car serviced and you come to pick it up, they put a piece of white paper on the floor of the driver's footwell. Mm-hmm and uh, one of my technicians from birmingham so he's 250 miles away uh, rang me up he said i've got an idea we shouldn't put these pieces of paper in the footwells of cars and i said oh what makes you think that well customers hate it if you watch the customer go out in the car park and he picks the piece of paper up throws it in the back of the car and he puts it in the bin when he gets home so the customers don't like these mats in the footwell so i rang the accounts department i said how much are we paying for paper mats and the answer was a quarter of a million pounds wow so we stopped putting paper mats in the cars that had been serviced and saved a quarter of a million pounds so i got in the car and drove the 250 miles down to the dealership got everybody in the workshop and presented that guy with his pound coin and i sold the company about eight years ten years later that technician still have that pound in his pocket and he'll still have the pound in his pocket today and he'll tell everyone that he meets how he got that pound because he'd contributed to the, uh, the success of the company and it was those sorts of things if we involve the team that it's a team effort then we'll get outstanding results if we treat them as people who are just making profit for our own back pocket or our own well-being then it's just a different culture altogether
0: this sounds so sensible. Why are businesses not doing this, right? I think the challenge for me, Sir Peter, is the, is, the, is the idea of values. I think most business people first start from the profit, then the business plan to get to that profit, and then they go like, ah. Oh, uh, yeah, and we have to have like a company culture and a company mission and it's almost backwards. While in reality, if you do it the right way, you get people who are motivated, engaged, feeling that the place is theirs, investing time, proud of what they're doing. Why is business not run that way?
1: Well, perhaps it's people who are under pressure for profit too soon. They're chasing the uh, the money. I mean, I had a, our advertising agency came up for review. And I put it out to tender, and I got a guy that came, and they won the advertising contract for the cars. And uh, he uh, he wanted to take me out for lunch to celebrate. It was an £18 million account, and uh, it was a big thing for this guy. And I I said, look, you know, what's your aim in life? And he says, oh, I want to be a millionaire. Mm. And my face hit the table. (laughs) And he says, what's the matter with that? I said, everything is the matter with that. I said, if all you want is a million pounds, you'll get the million. And then they say, well, I really want two. I really want four. You'll never be happy if you're chasing money. He said, well, what should my aim be? I said, well, you should have the best advertising agency in the north of England. Then the best advertising in England and then the best advertising in the UK. And if you develop your people, you develop your marketing skills, you develop your marketing campaigns so that your clients are winners in all of this, one day you'll turn around and you'll look at your bank account and you'll find that you're extremely wealthy, but it'll be a result of doing the job properly, not the pursuit of money in it and form. And, you know, we're trying to exercise common sense. I mean, we're, we're not brain surgeons. We're just straightforward people who uh, try and encourage people to give of the best uh, for the common good. And there's a lot of good comes out of what we've done through the business and touch on the foundation later. And folks feel that they are part of something that is making a profit to give it away.
0: Mm. When the dealership started to succeed, you who haven't finished school started to build schools. And that I found really, really interesting. So from one side, I don't know, maybe you didn't really appreciate school, but you appreciate it for everyone else, which I find really interesting. But more importantly, I think the concept that business can be applied to anything is something that's really interesting to me. You know, the skills that you learn as a business person would allow you to do everything in a different way. Is that true?
1: Yes. I mean, when the opportunity to build a school came along and I was asked to do it, I said, look, you haven't done your homework you know, because if you've done your homework, you'd see that I left school at 16 with one O-level in music. <laughs> and uh, I had literacy problems when I was at school. So you'd need to go back and uh, you know, rethink this. And they said, no, no, we've done our survey. You have turned around a number of failing businesses. Could you turn around a failing school? So I took a look at it and said, well, could I? What are the elements? Why are schools failing? And I sat and looked at it and I thought, well, the reason schools fail is that we have teachers who become senior teachers, who then become department heads, who then become an assistant head and then become a head or a principal. And they're really a teacher. They've had no experience in business at all. They might be very good teachers, but they're very poor accountants. They're very poor at HR, and they're very poor at um, IT. So I said, we need to let the teachers teach, but take all the business element away from them. So I built the school, put an accountant in, put an IT person in, and put an HR manager in. Because the, the big thing with schools is getting the bad teachers out, and the good teachers in if we can make sure that every teacher could inspire their children in their subject, we'd have an outstanding school. And that's what we achieved in the the school that we built in uh, in Newcastle. And then of course we ended up building five schools and took a business approach. So it was business partnering with education. We were just bringing our own skills, bringing the teaching skills to the classroom and the, the business skills to the business of the school. And you know, we had a wonderful time, surplus money all over the place because we treat the money very importantly. And uh, it was a great success.
0: Tell me a little more about getting the bad teachers out. I actually never thought of it this way. I thought the idea was to get good teachers in, but...
1: Yeah, but yeah, you see, what, what happens in a school is they, because they, they're all teachers, the teachers think they're a protected species. you can't fire a teacher so you move the teacher sideways and bring somebody else in but of course you do that and you burst your finance budget because you have to manage people and if they're not doing the job then they need to go and work somewhere else there's three things can you train the person you can't train them are they actually in the right post could you transfer them To do something else and if you can't train them you transfer them you terminate them it's as simple as that you know and education of children is too important to have the wrong people in the classroom because we can all remember well I I can't remember because I didn't do very well at school but everybody can remember the teacher that they liked the teacher that inspired them and they did well in their subject as a result of liking the teacher and and wanted to work hard for them So if you got the wrong teacher in as a head of the school, it was their responsibility to make sure that they had the right teachers. An HR manager in there looking at the results from every teacher, every classroom, every subject was identifying that these people needed to be trained, transferred or terminated. And it was an issue that we had to face. I took one school over and... uh, The examiners came in and said, It's a marvelous school, marvelous leadership, fantastic facilities, poor teachers. And this was halfway through the first term. So I said, Get everybody into the lecture theatre and I'll be down in a few minutes. So I went down and I said, Look, you're obviously not on the same page as me. This is a centre for excellence. And a centre for excellence demands teachers that are absolutely passionate about their subject and won't rest until they're top of their profession. So if you want to be out, there'll be a cheque waiting for you and you can go and work somewhere else. And 20 teachers took the cheque and went to work somewhere else so we get on and sort the people out. But you would do that in a business, but you wouldn't do that normally in a school. But because we were sponsoring the schools, we were given, not carte blanche, but we we're, were given the authority
0: And these changes make a massive difference. So I have been a businessman all my life, and I actually struggle to understand when people think that money is hard. I think making money is really not that difficult, and actually making enough of it is almost possible for everyone that works really hard, right? What are your secrets? You know, if if someone has been dreaming and saying, you know, I want to be the next Peter Vardy, I want to, you know, to start a business, but they're not succeeding. What are they doing wrong? What are the secrets of money?
1: Well, I think one of the things I have to do is recognize their own strengths and their own weaknesses. You can't do everything yourself and uh, you have to write down on one side of the paper what you do well, what gifts you've been given, and on the other side, the things that you find really difficult. And I do that all the time and do it with the, the guys I'm working with. So that when you're recruiting people to come and work with you, you recruit them to work in your areas of weakness so that we are in a strength-based environment where the strengths of one covers the weaknesses of the other. And uh, if we can build a team that uh, has the strengths that are needed, then you normally have a team of three if you're trying to run a business and those three people bring their different skills if it's sales finance and uh, business then you can work well together but i mean we have to have first of all is a vision but what is you going to try and do and then you need a strategy of how you're going to achieve it because a vision without strategy is hallucination you're just in a dream it has to be what are we aiming for how are we going to get there? And by when? So, all right, having a five-year vision, but you need a monthly or a three-monthly strategy so you know how you're going to get there. So, you you, you know, you're not plodding on for months and months and months and thinking, oh, we haven't actually got as far as we thought we'd do. So it's putting stakes in the ground so you know this is what we're going to do and by when. You know, that's the sort of advice we give to folks if they're looking to start a business.
0: I get that quite a lot. You know, I so often get people that say, Oh, I have that most amazing idea, imagine if. And I go like, Okay, so I imagined it. How are we gonna get there? Right? What now? And they will go like, no, 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 I'll you know, someone will do it. You know, I just got the idea. And and to me that's a joke really, because it's all about execution in my view. Having said that, I really want to go back to that strength-based environment. So Managing for strength is also an individual thing, right? I mean, you started by saying you know your own strengths and weaknesses and and you basically do what you're good at and you get someone else to help you with what you're not. I mean, is that something that you think people should do in general? So if, if someone is just working a job nine to five and that job is not playing to their strengths, it's, you know, it needs some of their weaknesses, does that mean it's the wrong job?
1: Well, I think it is because... They're not going to be the the real value to themselves or the value to their own company if they're working in their area of weakness most of the time. I mean, you know, the the big program done across the world of how much of your time is spent working in your strengths and how much of your time is spent working in your weakness. And in some areas, 75 and 80 percent of people said they were working in their area of weakness most of the time. Well, the company's not going to benefit if that's the way it is. You know, so, you know, in the car business, we have salesmen who sell cars. That's fine. They're all right at selling. If they have to do the paperwork, it's an absolute nightmare. (laughs) So you have to have salesmen who do the paperwork and they have administration people who do the paperwork and the admin. And, you know, you say, whoa, hang on, we can't afford all these people. But if the salesmen are selling all of the time, they'll sell twice or two and a half times the cars that they would normally sell if you take the paperwork away from them. So they're happily going on selling cars, 30, 40 cars a month instead of 14 cars a month because somebody is sweeping up after them. And we're able to sell a lot of cars because we have people working in their
0: area of strength throughout the process. That's so cool. That is the right way to do it. So your area of strength is setting up businesses. You sell your business, and yet, you know, you you had the opportunity to build another one and another one. I mean, you know this stuff inside out, and yet you choose to go and build the foundation. What made you make that choice?
1: Well, I thought I'd been amazingly blessed and fortunate in what I'd, I'd accumulated. And so you think, well, what's the purpose of all this? Why is it? And it isn't that I want a yacht or an airplane or anything like that. You know, so why, you know, as a Christian, why has God blessed me with this sort of wealth? There must be a purpose for this. So I need to find the purpose. So obviously we're built schools and I'm now into doing other things in the, uh, in the, the charity world. But one of the, the main things I'm doing at the moment is trying to stop children going into care system. There are 100,000 children in the care system in the United Kingdom, and uh, 43% of them will serve a prison sentence before the 21. And you think, oh dear. And I mean, they're not standing around waiting for a car salesman to tell them how to do this, (laughs) but a bit of common sense says, if we can do something about this, we can transform the lives of thousands of young people. And if we transform the lives of them, then they affect their families and the children they're going to have and all that sort of thing. So we have 5,000 volunteers who help families who are going through crisis. And the idea is to reduce the number of children going into care by 25, 30, 35%. So that's another 30,000 kids don't go into care. They stay with their family and the family get the support that they need. The other thing we're doing is helping guys when they come out of prison. They, they're they coming out of prison with nowhere to live, no family to come out to. Uh, so it's all those sorts of things that challenge me and, and get me excited about what we can do to, to help the most challenged of individuals and families. Fortunately, because I've got the money, I don't have to go around to government and ask the government for money to start this. I mean, a lot of folks in charity spent you know, a disproportionate amount of the time trying to find the money before they actually do the thing that really fires them up. And I can use my own money and, uh, and get these things going and then look to get some funding later when we prove that it
0: works. So this is a, an amazing extension of the idea of education. So here we think we have a system in place that works, which basically says families breaking up, let's take care of the children. Let's just take them away you know, and put them in care, you know, houses or care facilities. And then basically, we end up not measuring anything after that. We've done what we need. We don't realize that 43% of them are going to end up in the wrong place and they're going to keep coming back. Basically, they'll come out of prison and they will have nothing to do, so they'll go back to prison. And so basically, the government needs to invest in prisons. You know, that's where the money is going.
1: That's exactly what's happening over here. The Chancellor has said he's going to put another $4.5 into building more prisons. Hmm. And I've said to the ministers, stop that sort of thinking. Prevent children going into care. The prison population is full of children that have come through the care system. There's 80,000 people in prison at the moment, and most of them have come through the care system. So if we solve the care system, we can knock the prisons down will reduce the prisons and money that that would save is phenomenal but the politicians don't think like that they think in silos so one's in charge of children one's in charge of ministry of justice one's in charge of prisons and things like that and each have their own budget and they don't look across the uh, the whole panoply of of departments to say, what should we do better? And we're doing that now through the foundation. We had a meeting this morning about getting government departments to work together to work with entrepreneurial, uh, well, philanthropic cash to get it multiplied by government departments to come up with better systems to look after children in care and guys in prison.
0: So the foundation is Safe Family for Children, right?
1: Well, it's the Vardy Foundation, but we have uh, Safe Families for Children, we have other areas of work that we're doing. Some of we do have, some of it we're helping other charities to expand and grow their portfolio. So if we give them a bit of money, can we see their increase their effectiveness in the, their chosen area? Some of it's mental health, some of it's housing, some of it's uh, social care. But you know, the, the way mental health is at the moment, it's an enormous problem for too many people
0: totally so help me understand the mechanics of this so here is a family the family is breaking up the child is being taken to care what does the foundation do
1: right the safe families and i mean safe families for children came from chicago i came to chicago met dave anderson the founder of safe families for children saw what he'd done and said this is so simple it can be done anywhere so What happens is we raise volunteers, we train the volunteers, so we work with social services so they identify a family that's in trouble where the children might be taken into care. So we then end up putting volunteers around that family and our volunteers are in three parts. One's a host family, so they take the child and the mother, if necessary, into their home for a short period of time just to get over the crisis. Uh, the main number of volunteers are family friends. So they'll act as a aunt, uncle, grandparent to a mother who's going through real difficulty. And the third set as what we call resource friends. So if they need a washing machine or a bed or a garden doing or anything like that, the volunteers will give of what they've got or give money so they can buy washing machines and fridges and cookers and all that sort of thing so we can take a family on and surround them with a, an army of volunteers until they get back on the feet and they understand how to be a good parent because a lot of the people who were helping were ex-care leavers themselves wow. who've come up there have a baby and think all they want is a baby and then because it it's a, a big liability until they know how to handle the situation or how to care It's amazing. I I mean, I've been selling Rolls Royces, Ferraris and Aston Martins all my life. But when you see the other side of society and you're going into homes where there's no carpets on the floor, no furniture, the child is lying on the floor, there's no pushchair, so you can't take the children to the supermarket. It's dreadful. And so raising this army of volunteers that are going to Help. I mean, I, I need to raise about 50,000 volunteers. I've got 5,000 at the moment. They're doing a tremendous work and it's greatly appreciated.
0: That's amazing. That really is amazing. I mean, in a way, and I hope you don't get me wrong, this is how it used to be like. In an interesting way, you know, community was like that.
1: Well, this is a community solution for a community problem because i mean it's come to the stage where you don't really talk to your neighbor very much you sometimes you don't even know who your neighbor is but you know go back in my lifetime you know they would leave the door open they would leave the keys in the car and and first each other they could nip in for a cup of tea and uh, you know all of that's gone because uh, society has moved against that and uh, uh, it's such a sad situation
0: It really is. It really is. So, Peter, I want to ask you two very personal questions, and I hope you don't mind me just touching on this. So so I, of course, because of my career and, you know, what I've achieved in life, I have lots of millionaire and billionaire friends, and they're rarely ever happy. Did money ever make you happy?
1: No, no, no. Money doesn't make you happy. You know, I've gone through the same tragedy that you've gone through I lost a son oh, I'm so sorry when he was five year old so that puts life into perspective but uh, I think it was a result of losing my son that I ended up throwing myself into the business so much and uh, just worked night and day uh, after that but uh, no I mean money enables you to do an awful lot of good things and that's what I'm trying to do we've been blessed with uh, you know real amount of wealth in an area where a lot of people are very poor and it, it helps us to get things established and get things off the ground and uh, do some really interesting work why i think that's my calling that that's why i'm here why i've been blessed with the wealth while i think i've been blessed with a, a certain element of common sense not much common sense around at the moment that's a (laughs) bit of a shortage and you see it across the world you see it in in politics all over the place and if i can bring some sense or a little bit of order to certain areas i mean i can't do everything nobody can but if we can bring some initiatives of uh, support to families that's in crisis trying to reduce the prison population trying to improve education. I mean, the, the big thing is if we can give the children a better start in life, that's where the school started. And uh, I was seeing young people that were coming for jobs that couldn't spell the street they lived in. You know, so I thought literacy and numeracy are real problems. So trying to do something in education, it was the motivation for doing that. And, you know, seeing children coming into the schools that were coming from broken families and they're they're in foster care, and they didn't know where they were from one month to the next, you think, well, we could do something about that as well. So it's just facing up the challenge. And one of the things that's been interesting in my life, we've been presented with opportunities, and most folks would say, no, you know, no, 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 prisons? You know, no, that's not my line of fire. But I, I tend to try and say, well, why have I been offered this opportunity? What can I do? And can we make a difference? And if you have a positive approach to things, then you start looking at the strengths and weaknesses of what the system is. And by, you know, putting accountants and HR people into the schools, it transformed the education experience for the children. And there were Oxford, Cambridge graduates, and, you know, the results were spectacular. And it just showed what it could be done if you just exercised. The grey matter.
0: So, the other side of this question, if you don't mind me asking, is why isn't it that everyone who's wealthy is doing this? I mean, there was a statistic here in the Muslim community that basically said if the wealthiest of the Middle East just paid what is due, you know, through the Islamic religion, we're, were due 2.5% of your savings, not of your income, of your savings a year. So, basically, the surplus money that you haven't spent. And if that was paid, there wouldn't be a single hungry person on the planet. There was another statistic that I don't remember exactly, but if a fraction of the taxes paid worldwide were actually directed to charitable causes, you know, you wouldn't have any illiteracy, you wouldn't have any hunger, and so on and so forth. Why is it? Why is it that someone who's made millions or billions traditionally actually doesn't give back? Why is it that people continue to want more and more?
1: It is can't explain that, but but it is such a shame because there is joy in giving. There's a lot of happiness to be had from seeing the results of your labor. If you've worked all your life and created millions and you end up giving it away to causes that excite you. You know, folks asked me about getting involved in uh, the stuff that I'm involved with. I said, well, you need to look at what excites you or what makes you angry, and do something about it. Mm. So so you're saying, I'm angry about this. Uh, well, all right, go and do something about it. Don't just complain about it. Go and put some action into place. And we can all do something. It's so you're saying you can't do anything. Everybody can do something, whether it's a very small thing, volunteering to help these situations and causes and charities or whether it's, it's folks like me that have got the money and need to, you know, give it away. There is a lot of giving going on with uh, some of the wealthiest of families, True. you know, pledging to give it away.
0: And Absolutely.
1: you just hope that their example will rub off on everybody else.
0: Yeah, I, I worked with the Bill & Melinda Foundation and the giving pledge, you know, amazing, really, truly amazing. Yeah. And it is, however, a shame, I think, that so many don't realize that. Because, you know, when you make some money, you realize that you don't really need that much at all. At the end of the day, I wear $19 T-shirts. But even if you, if you wear expensive suits, how many can you buy?
1: You can only wear one at a time, yes.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And I mean, to be honest with you, folks have worked and worked and worked all their lives. And they don't take their retirement or the wealth very well at the end of it. They're not happy at the end if they haven't done something constructive with it. So many opportunities to do things and put back and give back. And there is so much experience in those people that if they got themselves involved in some charitable work, they could be tremendously effective in whatever they put their minds to, you know, whether it's education, health, welfare, or whatever it is world poverty, you know, whatever it is, if they used their strengths that they used to build a business, to put it into the charitable side of uh, life, their wisdom, their strength, their experience would be of tremendous value to some of the charities.
0: Well, at least I know that you exist. You're putting your wealth, your experience and your wisdom I think that you're an amazing, amazing example, Peter. I think truly and honestly, you know, I wish we have more of you in the world. And uh, I hope that maybe we've inspired a few to go out and be successful and uh, also make a difference as well. I think that would make a better world for all of us.
1: Well, it's very kind of you. Thank you very much for our chat. We've enjoyed speaking to you.
0: Thank you for being here. It was an amazing privilege. Thank you so much. Well, I, I found this very, very inspiring. I mean, he said at the end, look for what excites you or what makes you angry and do something about it. And remember, your wealth doesn't have to be money. Your wealth could be your experience, your knowledge, uh, your inspiration, your charisma, your effort, even your steps if you're on a marathon, your time, your smile. Each of us has some kind of wealth. And I think if we If we find what excites us or what makes us angry and do something about it i think that would make for a a better world i have to admit i normally don't talk about business on slow-mo i i think the world has enough business in it but here is a business example that i think truly makes a difference and i hope that you got inspired to get up and start and try build for your strength try to complement your strength with others who are strong at what you're weak at and uh, hopefully uh, eventually make a difference. I'm very grateful for the opportunity that you all give me to record those incredibly inspiring conversations. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. If you did, please do your part and spread the word. Uh, Help me reach as many people as I can. Rate this podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts or just tell others about it in person, on a WhatsApp chat, in social media. Whatever you can, please do help me spread the message. And uh, do get in touch. Um, Mo underscore on Instagram. Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn. i um, on Twitter. And mo.gaudet.official on Facebook. And I'd love to hear whatever you think. Recommend a guest like uh, Francis recommended Sir Peter. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, tell me what I can do to make things better. If you were running this place, as Sir Peter said, would you do it differently? What would you do differently? And um, yes, uh, please remember that as you slow down, you become a little faster. So um, remember, if regardless of how busy you are today, uh, there's always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.